Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Modern Adventurer podcast. In that area, he had the sleds and, the, and, and our dog. And I was un, unhooked and I was testing ice and I broke through this river with tremendous amount of current and was almost pulled under the ice to go a kilometer down river, never to be found again, right? Like, I mean, it was a thin, so I was in this hole and I was like with my, that my snowshoes on that were pulling me under with the current. And so I was trying to work my boots off. It was about minus 30. I was trying to work my boots off, but I couldn't get them off. I'm John Horsfall, and before I start, I want to say thank you to you for listening to the podcast week after week as it continues to grow. This is the 10th episode of the podcast in which we have spoken to some remarkable people. So to celebrate this podcast, the 10th episode, we have an extraordinary guest. He has run in long distance running adventures in several countries over the years, including the South Pole, Siberia, and the Atacama Desert. He has run across the Sahara Desert, and I was delighted to have the chance to speak to him from Canada. We spoke about how he started and the planning that goes into these adventures, as well as a narrow escape from death after falling through the ice. I am delighted to introduce Ray Zahab to the show. I suppose people listening is when they see the list of the expeditions you've done over the years, it's truly remarkable. And I I suppose what I want to know is how did this love affair with ultra running come about? Well, that's a great question, John. So, you know, everybody sort of finds the thing that they're passionate about at, at some point. Right. So, and you know, my story's not that uncommon, I would say in, in endurance and adventure. I I was a guy who, uh, in my late twenties, um, was, as as you had mentioned before, when we were talking before we came on air, I was smoking a pack, two packs a day. I was a very unhealthy person, uh, drinking my face off, filling my body full of pollutants. And, um, I think, you know, most importantly, I was a very unhappy person. I was one of these people that, you know, if you were, if we were drinking together at the pub, you'd think I was like the life of the party. I was always having a great time, but inside I was a very unhappy person. And I think that a lot of us have a hard time, at least I know I did, defining that and being honest about that, as long as that's not sounding too philosophical, but it's the truth. And so I, um, I got to a point where I was close to 30 and I was just sick of feeling that way. I was just no longer satisfied with a life that, uh, was going nowhere that was void of passion or direction. And I just thought, shit, like I can't see myself lasting many more years living this way. So something's got to change. And I have a brother, a younger brother, John, who is a year younger than I am, just an incredible athlete. And he's one of these guys who he wasn't uh, a conventional athlete. This is the late nineties, right? So not everybody was talking uh, so much about mountain biking and rock climbing and alpinism and all the things that we all love to do now. 
uh, back then, I mean, you know, people talked much more, you know, about the other sports that everybody was sort of already used to, right? I don't examples, whatever, hockey, football, baseball, et cetera. And so he, I'm not saying that it wasn't there. It's just that it wasn't as like, I, I guess as popular a thing. And so he was, he was doing these things. And I was like fascinated by the things he was doing. Now, maybe it's also because I didn't know about any of these things. So it wasn't in my mind that people actually did these things, but he was a great example of what these adventure sports could bring to someone. And he was this very confident guy who was like amazing shape. And at that time in my life, he was sort of like a, like a beacon of, of, of potentially what could be. So I thought, what the hell? Maybe if I did the things he does in his life, my life would, would be different. And I had no money. I had no direction. I had nothing to lose. And I figured I'm going to give this a shot. And that's basically how it started. I mean, I took me three years to quit smoking, which was sort of the symbol of everything else that was negative that was going on in my life that I was doing in my life, the over partying, everything else. It's kind of like, I, if I could control this one thing, I thought I could control everything else. And uh, because I loved, I loved smoking. I mean, there's just no, there's no if and buts about it. I, you know, having a, a smoke and a, and a coffee or a pint of Guinness and a coffee, you, I just could not picture life without smokes. That took me three years to quit smoking. And, um, you know, it, it, it really gave clarity to me that the most difficult things that we do in our lives are very relative to us as individuals is how we feel about something that's really the most critical. Cause I speak at these things at events all over the world and people come up to me and they tell me, Hey man, it took you three years to quit smoking. It took me like a day. What's up with that? And I said, well, yeah, because for me it was friggin' hard, you know, but anyhow, I always tell long stories as you can tell. So I, I quit smoking finally on new year's Eve, 99 completely. I tried off and on for three years. And then that's when my life began to change. It was that one thing. And from that point forward, it's sort of like a joke. I followed my brother into the outdoors. He was teaching me things. I started doing the sports he was doing. I got, became an avid ice climber. I became, uh, you know, quite adept on a mountain bike. I started racing mountain bikes at a pretty elite level, uh, you know, cross country and 24 hour solos. And then, um, you know, I was adventure racing. I was doing all these things that were reintroducing myself to me, to a new me at 30 years of age, 35 years of age that I never knew existed. I had this engine to do these things when cleaned up. I had an engine like my brothers to do these things. And that led me to ultra running. I read an article about a race called the Yukon Arctic Ultra, a hundred mile version of that race. It takes place in the Yukon every year. And it was my very first running race. I had not done a running race. And I not only completed that race, I, I actually won it. And it was uh, it was like a weight, like a ton of, 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 of bricks had been lifted from my shoulders and that I, I realized that it wasn't a me thing that, that people, human beings, underestimate themselves physically, mentally, emotionally. And I knew that running and adventure was teaching me like to redefine who I was or what limits I might or might not have. And that, in the longest answer possible, is how I started ultra running. And that race led me to other races all over the world. I would continue to compete and I loved that. And then that would eventually lead me into expeditions, which I'll wait till you ask me the question. <laughs> do you think, because you said you were a sort of very keen smoker, do you think when you gave up um, smoking after three years, it was finding that new 
addiction in a sense, in a way that we had on the show in episode two, a guy called James Gwinnett, who get, get, had to give up alcohol. And he said he sort of saw it at first running as a way of coping. Did you find that giving up smoking, ultra running sort of moved in to sort of take, take the place of smoking? No, I think individual experiences and individual lives are very unique. How we internalize the situation that we're in and we act on it is, again, a very individual and relative thing, right? Yeah. But I, I would like to say that it was, but it's almost like the same way that I entered that Yukon Arctic Ultra after reading this magazine article. And I was influenced and inspired by the people in the article the photos of them that they all appeared to be relatively normal looking people. They didn't look like what I thought an elite marathon runner looked like. And so based on that alone, I was inspired to enter this crazy race that when you think about it on its surface, okay, so you're going to go run a hundred miles. That's bad enough in the Arctic, dragging all your stuff with you, right. As your first running race, it doesn't really make sense. And you know, there's the old saying ignorance is bliss. It just kind of fell into place. When I first started doing these things with my brother, it had nothing to do really with the sports themselves. It had to do with him and this confidence that he had and the fitness that he just, like he just was a, it was a whole comedy. He was the package of what I wanted to be. And so he could have been a, you know, I've made the joke that he could have been an electrician. And this would be a podcast about how best to wire your house. And that's what we'd be sitting here talking about right now. So it really didn't, I didn't care so much about what he did. It's what he had become. And so then I fell in love with the sports I was doing. So it wasn't like I was doing them. Do I have an addictive personality? Quite possibly, you know, but is it, is it like this endurance, this, this thing that I need to go and and I feel every day, well, if I don't, you know, run or mountain bike or do the things I do or ski that like that, that void needs to be filled. It's kind of not like that. It's not like that for me. It's just, it just is, it just became what it is, you know? Yeah. It's the sort of love of it now. Um, it is the love of it now and what it teaches me about me and 17,000 kilometers later. Plus, I don't even know. I keep trying to add it up. It, look, it's a lot of kilometers in deserts and arctic regions i keep learning stuff about us you know and, and i think that that i think is extremely fulfilling you know and it sort of fills any gaps did you find with the first race it was very much this idea of com uh, completing the race and then after you had won it it was very much of how far can i go no, the first race I did, when I was standing at the start line, I thought there is no friggin' way I'm finishing this race. Like there's just, it's not happening. Like it wasn't even a, you know what? It wasn't trying to be positive or it wasn't, I mean, like it, it was not going to happen. It was just going to, my goal was get as far as I could and then like push myself like I hadn't before and then see if whatever all these other people that do this stuff and somehow find something in it that's fun or whatever, a reason for them to go back and, and do something so hard over and over, figure out what that magic is they know, and then go home. Because I'd done hard stuff physically. Racing mountain bikes is hard. Cross country is hard to do. It's just, you're just full throttle. You're full pin the whole time. When you're climbing, your lungs are on the bars of the bike, right? Like it's just, 
it's a brutal sport. And then descending, especially in Quebec where I live, it's, it's very technical mountain biking. And so it had it all. So it wasn't like I was going in trying to something, find something physically more difficult to do. It, it just was something that I had never done. And I saw the reward effort reward equation from other people seemed to be is something that I really needed and wanted. So that's, that's how that, but then, you know, lo and behold, I'm get to, I get to 80 K in this race and I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm dropping out of this. This is stupid. What am I going to tell all the people, you know, back at home that told me not to do this in the first place. Right. So I had this big engine for mountain biking and, and adventure racing when I started that race, but running is a completely different thing. <laughs> you know, it's a completely different, you know, the, my legs, dude, were like cement, right? Like I felt horrible, but something in me compelled me to go forward in that race. And the further I went, and this is the amazing thing that never happened when I was mountain bike racing or adventure racing, the further I went, the better I felt. It's like when I fully committed to it, like when I was all in, when I like at the 80K mark onward, I was like, okay, I'm so, I'm into this now. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to push myself into the ground because to be perfectly honest with you, the people back at home, I'm, I'm not, I don't care anymore what anyone thinks, you know, it, it, I did this for me. I had no money. I spent every dime in my bank account for the entry fee to get to this race. Friends of mine donated aeroplan, like, a, you know, air miles for me to go to the race. Right. So I'm, what am I going home? I mean, it, I was there for me and I, and I, and I realized in that moment I was there for me and no one else. So however this thing finished was on my terms, no one else, you know, so 30 years of worrying or not taking risks because I was afraid of what someone would think or that something was going to work out, wasn't going to work out. Right. And all this negative shit that I would predict gave way in this race. And I just cranked it. Like I pushed myself, cranked it. I struggled down the trail, walking, dragging my feet to the side. And then one thing led to another, I started finding myself running. I was totally focused about getting down the trail as far as I could. And then night turns to day and da, 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 da. And then I finish it and I win this race. Now, how did I do it? I didn't know how I took all those processes and steps to get me to the finish line. That's why I continued ultra running. It wasn't because, hey, I won this. Maybe uh, I'm going to run. I'm going to win ultra marathons from now on. That's my new thing. That wasn't what I was thinking. When I left that race, I thought, wow, like I crossed that finish line feeling like a million bucks. I want to feel invincible like that, talking to somebody on a podcast or writing a, an email. Like I want to feel that good every day. Now, how exactly did I do that? Because I felt like shit about 10 minutes after the race ended because that's when all the pain came back in my legs, right? So uh, that's when I started entering ultra marathons all over the world. And I started competing in them. And I liked the more adventure ones. I went to races in the Sahara, the jungle, um, et cetera. And then I would meet up with a couple of ultra runners. We became really good buddies. And then we decided to run across the entire Sahara, 7,500K. And that's when that whole new life began of expeditions. Because it was just a completely different set of skills and and it's been 31, 32 expeditions since that day. Good. And so how from then to your Sahara race, which was in 1997? Uh, sorry. The Sahara Expedition? Sahara Expedition was 2006, 2007. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so in terms of the planning for that, to go from your first race to that, did you have a lot of races in between or was it very much a couple of years? Like yeah. I just did, it was 04. So that was 2004, February 2004 was the Yukon Arctic Ultra. Then in that time frame, I mean, you know, between 2004 and 2006, when we left for the Sahara, so basically uh, like two years, two and a half years, I had gone to, oh my goodness. I, I So I, there was the Yukon, then there was Marathon des Sables the first time. Then I did the Transalp mountain bike race. Then I did the Trans 333, 333 kilometers nonstop in Niger. I did the Jungle Marathon stage race in that, Brazil. I did the Libyan Challenge, 190K through the Akakus Mountains in Western Libya. I did Marathon de Sab again. I did Racing the Planet, a couple of their races. All of these, dude, one rat run right after another. Like, I was so beat down before I even got to the People ask me, how did you train to run 7,500K in 111 days across the Sahara? So think about that math. That's about 70 kilometers a day for 111 days straight in the sand right? How did you train to do that? I said, well, I just did a bunch of these races for two years, right? And yeah. it was, it was again, ignorance is bliss. Of course, I don't approach my expeditions that way, the way I approached running the Sahara. I mean, we were on threads in that, in that expedition, you know, but now I take a much more scientific approach to preparing, you know? That's absolutely mental. And I mean, God, just sort of thinking about it, because Marathon runners, you sort of see the Mo Farrell and all those sort of runners, they don't compete in every single marathon around the world. They they specifically pick and choose because between each race, you need quite a extensive amount of rest in between. Otherwise, oh well, I don't know the sort of scientific versions of it, but um, your body sort of needs to recover. But before the Sahara, you were very much going from one to the other to the other. And that rather than training, you were just competing in these races. More, more or less. Yes, I would say that that, you know, obviously I was training in between the races. There was gaps of a month or two, right? You know, maybe it was on an average of every two months. So I was definitely training in those two month periods. Um, I was obviously tired, you know, and then I had between the last race I did was in 2006 and I'm trying to think I think it was the Sahara race in Egypt which I won and I think that no that was in 2005 anyhow I can't remember but I had a few months before doing running the Sahara now running the Sahara was a different project completely because it was uh, the three of us together as a team and our goal was to run from the western coast of Africa to the eastern coast six countries um and we had a film crew that followed us right so uh you know I always say it was serendipity that had a huge hand in this but Matt Damon and an academy award winner made this film running the Sahara in an effort to raise awareness for the drinking water crisis in North Africa clean water crisis um and so uh there was more to it do you know what I mean and but running the Sahara was the longest expedition I've done, but it was also the most supported. And since then, expeditions have become less supported, completely unsupported, 
in the case of a lot of my cold expeditions, like winter Arctic expeditions, or in desert Arctic or other desert Arctic desert expeditions that I've done. Need more coffee today. Uh, they've been in brutal climates with minimal resupplies because it's just more economical to do it that way too, right? Yeah. So, and so you were doing that supported in terms of the team you are with. You had runners, you had support crew, you had vehicles all coming along beside you as you run. No, no. So in running the Sahara, and people can see the documentary running the run, it's just called Running the Sahara. Um, in that expedition, we would go lengthy periods navigating across the desert, and we would eventually meet up with four-wheel drives with our crew and then resupply, get hydration, everything we need. And then we take off again, depending on the desert, the terrain. Sometimes we were stuck on roads, depending on the country, right? Um, you know, and, and, and for multiple considerations, it depended on the region of, of North Africa, where we were, where we were at the time. So yes, we had a supported camp. We had people setting up tents, feeding us. There's an entire film crew, Hollywood film crew, filming the expedition as it happened. But then, but there was no pace runners. There was no, um, I don't know how else to put it. There wasn't somebody there every mile giving us hydration. You know, we carried it with us for, for as long as we could in the case of that expedition. Sort of similar to, let's say, the Marathon de Sable, where you sort of are able to refill each night, but you had them sort of at different checkpoints. Yeah, we didn't have to carry, because Marathon de Sable is six days. Yep seven days of racing and you know, you carry everything having done marathon day sad twice. I'm, you know, it, it, well aware of how you try to get everything down to weighing as much as it can all fit in this cup. I swear, you know, <laughs> so uh, we're not carrying all of our food. It's 111 days. Right. So we would only have hydration packs. And so it was, it was uh, everything we could t- by the end. So you're doing the long day more or less, a little bit shorter than the long day of the Marathon de Sab every single day, right? Is what it averaged out to be. We had some days that were really long, some days that weren't as long, but that was kind of like the average, right? So no, you're not carrying your sleeping equipment with you. But when I crossed the Atacama Desert, north to south solo, 1,200 kilometers from the Peruvian border south to Copiapo, I did it in summer 2011, the middle of the summer. Dude, you want heat? It was like in the 50s Celsius every single day, driest place on earth. It was brutal. I was limited, uh, limited resupplies. I was getting resupplies every 20 to 30K, sometimes as much as 50K. I was running as much as I could. I had many, many days over 70K. Um, and some days less, way less. One day I was injured, I got six or 7K. But on that expedition, I carried everything with me. You can see photos of me carrying all my supplies with me in case because it was unknown territory, a lot of it, where I was going through, in case I got stuck a day or two away from my crew, uh, you know, hoping that it wouldn't be more than a day because I would, it was so hot, I just could, physically could not carry enough hydration, right? But uh, you know what I mean? You see the difference, right? Running the Sahara crew, running across the Atacama Desert or the Gobi Desert or any one of the other deserts that I've crossed, very minimal. Carrying the supplies I need to be able to take care of myself when I'm out there. It was interesting because I went to a talk a couple of years ago and it was about how the body is able to adapt to the heat much better than the cold. 
So I think because uh, Homo sapiens originated in Africa in a very hot country, our bodies are able to adapt very quickly to the heat in comparison to the cold. Is it, do you find when you're in sort of 50 degree heats in the desert compared to minus 20, 30 in the Arctic, you're able to acclimatize quicker or I, easier? I wish uh, minus 20, my friend, is my backyard in winter in Chelsea, <laughs> Quebec, in the Arctic. You know, when I'm on a winter Arctic expedition, I was doing a project up uh, near the island of Tikik Tarjwak and on the sea ice and across Baffin Island in January, this past January 2020. With the winds, the temperatures dipped into the mid minus 60s. So insanely cold. Look, I much prefer heat over cold. But I train now, I take a year, two years to prepare for a project, right? And I find myself at both ends of the spectrum on the thermometer. I'm in deserts like Death Valley. I've done two major projects there in the middle of summer, July or August. The deserts, I love to be there in the summer when it's the hottest, whether it's Southern Hemisphere or Northern Hemisphere, summer for that hemisphere. In the Arctic and colder regions, I want to be there in the middle of winter. When it's the coldest, when it's going off, the sky looks completely different. And so I know that that's my goal is to be in those places in those times. So I take it very seriously and train and get my body to adapt through stress loading to be better able to do the hot or the cold. You're absolutely right. And I agree with the information that you had just shared with us about us being better able to adapt to heat. But I have a sauna in my backyard, it's a big sauna barrel. And I use it when I'm going to the Arctic, I train in the sauna barrel in extreme heat for the extreme cold. So I get my body used to being able to process fluids under a stressful situation and food like the sauna. If I can get my body working through that stuff, sweating, doing the things it needs to to cool itself and fuel itself, then at a stressful situation in the extreme cold, my body will then have the mechanics. It won't just go and then be done, right? And keel over. But instead, my body is able to better adapt to an alternate stressful situation, which is extreme cold. So um, that when I'm on expedition, I'm able to, my body use its faculties physically to warm itself, shivering, blah, 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 you know. But I also have an amazing partner, a company called Canada Goose. I don't know how popular it is in the UK. I've been with Canada Goose for 13 years and they custom make all of my clothing for all of my expeditions. And I use, you know, obviously clothing that's in the, I, it was the term lineup. And, um, Literally, I've had my life saved in the cold, you know, by by specific Canada Goose jackets that I've had that have literally saved my life in dicey situations. Like, it's crazy. Anyhow. Good. And, and so do you, with these sort of extremes, do you take different approaches? I mean, when you were talking about putting yourself into the extreme cold, do you take sometimes, let's say, approaches like Wim Hof methods, his breathing techniques? Do you take those sort of approaches? Or okay, you- so, so I mean, it's, it's, it's a much broader question, but breathing techniques. You know, I've been employing breathing techniques um, in my ultra running training since, in, uh, since the old days, you know, and when I was racing. 
um, nose breathing, et cetera, because there's a multiple reasons. Actually, there's a lot of books out there. People can look it up about nose breathing. There's a lot of research about that. Um, I have an altitude machine. I train, I think the better answer for me to give you is I train very specifically from food to training in the gym, to training outside very specifically for what it is that I'm going to do. So I'll give you an example. When I crossed the Namib Desert in 2018, I think it was summer 2018. So my buddy Stefano and I, Stefano from Italy, Gregoretti and I ran 1,850 kilometers in as straight a line as we could across Namibia. And we knew in planning, we'd be crossing canyons, gnarly terrain, bushwhacking potentially, sand, obviously, and, you know, some combination of gravel track if there was, right, you know, whenever we would end up with that. So I knew that elevation changes were going to be big as they were in the Atacama Desert when I was off road at elevation changes in the Atacama were crazy and it's a high desert. So I do all of my running training based on elevation gained each day, not on distance. I leave from my door where we live you know, I can leave, leave here and do a thousand feet every 10 K on very technical trails of elevation gain. So I would design my program around elevation gained and technical trail running, because what am I going to do in Namibia technical running? And I'm going to be going up and down a lot. So I may as well get my bodies. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then if I'm getting ready for an Arctic expedition, I'm going to be pulling a sled. I'm not a big guy. I weigh about 150 pounds. Right. So I need to get strong and build my strength base. So I am doing very specific core centric and specific movements in the gym. And I have a program designed for me by my brother, by the way, who's a leading strength coach. And he uh, helps me to get ready physically to pull a heavy sled. So that's kind of, and then nutrition. So if I'm going into a desert, many of the desert expeditions that I'm doing, uh, I'm sourcing my foods and getting my food on the ground there. So, you know, rice is mostly complex carbohydrates. You know, it just seems to be the name of the game in the desert. I bring loads of, you know, fats with me and stuff like that. But my crew in a desert expedition, I'm supported, right? And part of that minimal support is camp each night. Somebody's cooking for everybody, the camera guy, the blah, blah, blah. But in the Arctic, I'm dragging everything. I'm alone or I'm with one other person. And we're dragging everything for however many days we're out there. So in context to that, I'm going to take more fat than I am anything else because nine calories per gram, you get the picture. So I adapt my body before an Arctic expedition to a much higher fat diet. So rolling into the Arctic expedition, I'm already super efficient, you know? Yeah. It sounds like from you, you're very much specifically training and then you're all, it's just a natural progression into the race. Or into the yeah, expedition. I'm already, and then from a mental perspective, you know, I'm already there, right? Like I've been there thinking about this place in the back of my mind for a year. You know, some expeditions, it's two or three years of planning, you know, and so I'm already mentally there. And by the time I get to the expedition, things seem familiar. How crazy is that, right? <laughs> things just seem familiar. Like, oh yeah, I think I, I kind of feel like I've been here before. And of course I haven't but I'm comfortable in that space. Right. Yeah. And it's the same thing that we do with our youth expeditions. So the impossible to possible youth expeditions, uh, I've, I've done 15 of those with, through our youth program. I'm, you'll, I know you're going to probably ask me about this later, so I won't get too deep into it, but 
on those youth-based expeditions, because I've learned this about myself, we get our youth ambassadors before they go on expeditions to sort of not as heavily follow the protocols, but get behind a lot of these theories in preparation, you know? Yeah. Well, I suppose for people listening, why don't uh, you sort of explain what the impossible to possible is? Impossible to possible. So it's an organization that my wife and I and uh, my best friend Bob started in 2008. Shortly after, we actually came up with the concept in 2007 after I finished the running the Sahara expedition. And the idea was pretty straightforward that we wanted to recreate that running the Sahara experience that I had, but for young people. So give kids between 16 and 21 years of age, an opportunity, young people, an opportunity to go and do an extraordinary expedition in some far off part of the world, Amazon jungle, Tunisian Sahara, Arctic, uh, all over Rajasthan, and do a six-day, seven-day running expedition that's combined with a relevant educational program and resource based on the area that they're in. If you're in the Amazon jungle, we're learning about biodiversity, taking those lessons about biodiversity, turning them into daily educational modules, and then pumping it out for up to 10, 20,000 students who are following along through schools, through a live website. So through satellite, our youth ambassadors do the thing every day, we have faculty with us on the expeditions. They take the adventures, they create videos, threads that become educational modules, and then schools participate through the live website. Everything we do is 100% free. So it's free for the kids that go on the expeditions. It's free for schools, free for everyone. That's awesome. And so how, how long have you um, had that project for? Well, as I mentioned before, we started in 2008. Yep. And so we've done approximately i think it's for at 15 maybe 16 youth expeditions since we started spanning mm. the world and we you know during covid we had some plan for you know 2020 but just like everything else in 2020 <laughs> you know so uh we're looking forward to 21 and 22 and i suppose with uh a lot of these expeditions i mean you've been going on them for years on end in the back of your head, what's motivating you when sort of times are tough? Sort of what keeps you going to endure at probably at the best of times in the desert or in the Arctic, such extreme conditions? Well, look, for starters, it's my job, right? And I'm very fortunate that it's my job to be an explorer. You know, it, it, it's something that um, is not lost on me that, you know, I, I, I truly enjoy and love what I do. I choose to do the things that I do. So when I'm on those hard days out there, I remind myself that I made the choice to do this, you know? So, I mean, look at hard days are part of the deal. You accept it if you're going to do these things. So to dwell on those hard days, that's why, and, and everybody's got their thing. Everybody's got their gig and the way they want to share what it is that they're doing, but I try not to focus too much when I'm on expeditions on the day-to-day -day posts that I'm doing by satellite or whatever. I'm trying not to focus on that so much, right? I obviously mention it, but I talk more about, hey, I'm out here in the middle of Kamchatka. It's the worst conditions we could have ever imagined, but I'm not talking so much about the conditions of time, but look at this view. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm literally in a place where very few of anyone's ever been, you know, at a time of year, sometimes maybe somebody's been there, but not at that time of year. And so um, 
I, that's not lost on me. That drives me forward. But also the fact that I'm connected with these schools who are so stoked to be part of my expedition. It's like having extended teammates, right? And so it gives new meaning and purpose to the expedition itself, which excites me even more than getting to the other end of the expedition. I've had projects where I don't finish. I've had projects where I've almost lost my life. I've had projects that have gone incredibly well. The vibe is always the same, you know? Can you go into detail on some of the projects where it hasn't gone so well? Well, in 2017, I was, I think it was 2017. Hmm, Don't get my dates wrong. It's 2016 or 2017. I can't remember. In the winter, I was doing a project in the Canadian Arctic in February with my buddy, Stefano. This was not a solo project. It was the two of us together. And the goal was to take students on a journey across the Canadian Arctic in three completely different regions. And we would do three modes of winter travel in these three different regions. So the warm-up was up in the mountains in northern Labrador in the uh, indigenous um, territories of Nunatsviet and uh, uh, Nunavik in that area. And then um, from there, so that was going to be the warm-up. Go through these mountains cross these mountains, and then in snowshoes, then unsupported. And then in the next one, ski across Baffin in February, which would be the hardest one because it's Baffin Island in the middle of February. And then finish fat biking, uh, snow bikes or fat bikes, if you will, from Wrigley to Fort Good Hope in the Northwest Territories. So everything done in the month of February, basically, right? And in the very first days of, and it's a much longer story that I'll eat up all your time, so I won't go into the details because, you know, by now I tell long stories. But in testing ice in a river uh, gorge, crossing these mountains in the very beginning, I was moving ahead of Stefano because I had the most experience in that area. He had the sleds and, the, and, and our dog. And I was un- unhooked and I was testing ice and I broke through this river with tremendous amount of current and was almost pulled under the ice to go a kilometer down river, never to be found again. Right. Like, I mean, it was a thin, so I was in this hole and I was like with my, that my snowshoes on that were pulling me under with the current. And so I was trying to work my boots off. It was about minus 30. I was trying to work my boots off and I couldn't get them off and uh, with the current pulling against the snowshoes, right? Using that as leverage. And I I was sure I was never going to see my family again. This is how I was going to die. And it was horrific and terrifying at the same time. And in a desperate move, I pulled as hard as I could with my right leg and my leg flung out of this hole. And the hole was kind of like not triangular shape, but sort of triangular shape at the end that was away from me. And my cramp on on my snowshoe hook the edge of this hole on an angle like my leg was it was so much force that I pulled out with that it was just a momentum and my leg was there and I pushed against that and I was able to get myself up this is after being in the water for almost two minutes and I was able to get my body up onto the ice and then to a, a, a place that was safe enough that everything wasn't gonna all cave in Stefano could pull me he pulled against me and I rolled at the same time and I covered myself in snow immediately to try and get as much moisture off myself as possible. Then I talked about that can of goose jacket. I had my super heavy down jacket and down pants that were made for me. These crazy minus 70 puffy pants. I should have put them on for the, for the podcast so you could see them. But anyhow, and I put all that stuff, got all my clothes on, but I put all that stuff on 
and dude, there, it's a much longer discussion, but I survived that moment. I could not believe that I survived. I was laughing as a matter of fact, because I'd lost my mind temporarily because I could not believe. I didn't care that my boots were full of water and they were going to freeze to my feet and that potentially I would lose my feet. I did not care. If that was the deal to be able to see my family again, take them. Take, I was, I'd never felt that way in my life before that there was an absolute clarity in purpose and in, in what was important. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was, it was incredible for that. Anyhow, we eventually, we did not finish that section of the expedition. Our photographer who was photographing caribou way at the other end of this mountain range came by snow machine. We had to hike out. We got to another point, a day or two walking in snowstorms to get to a point where we could set camp. And um, he came and got us, but we went on by snow machine and then we flew out, but we went on to complete the next two sections of that expedition. (laughs) I was in bad shape, but I got it done, you know? God, that's incredible. I think, um, as you say, that sort of moment of clarity when you were saying that, I think 127 hours sort of came to me where he got his hand stuck on a rock for 127 127 hours. And he said he would never take it back because at that moment of having to, I mean, he had a bit longer than two minutes, but he sort of, he realized what he was missing and what he was so looking for, what he really wanted when he got out. And probably similar to you, you were sort of there clinging to life really. And in your mind, you just wanted to see your family and you didn't care what it took just to see your family again. Absolutely. You know, like, absolutely. Like it's, it's, um, it's one thing to you, like, you know, when we say that, they, well, you know, I know what's really important to me. You know, a lot of things we say in life and day to day, um, that's the beauty of adventure, I think, and, or, or anything that we do where we really challenge ourselves, right? Whether it's adventure or whether it's something else, is that you push yourself to a point sometimes in whatever it is that you're doing that it could be a negative push or a positive push, depending on how you look at it, but it brings you to a resolution, a clarity in specific moments and sayings that we use so, so often in life. And so, you know, the old, well, I, you know, I'm pretty sure I know what's important. Let me tell you, in that moment, I knew to me what was important. It was both the worst thing that ever happened to me on an expedition and the best thing that ever happened to me on an expedition changed many other aspects of my life as well after I got home from that one. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the time people are sort of sort of sleepwalking on a day-to-day life and it needs some sort of kick or something just to snap them out of it to suddenly realize what they really want. Not saying that it's sort of similar to you, but a lot of the time these moments of clarity really help define what we really truly want. Well, take a look at, and I think also it builds you know, a way too often used word resiliency. Take a look at, you know, COVID. Yeah. I mean, you know, you guys in London, complete lockdown, <laughs> right? And for some people, that's a huge struggle. Like yeah. if you're not living in a, in a awesome flat with a space and a family and everybody's hanging out and it's good times. If you're flying solo, you're alone in a, in a smaller flat that has no windows right? And, and that's your existence. You know, everybody's 
everybody's existence, again, it's relative. Their experience is relative to them and how they internalize it. But I think as a global population, going through COVID has taught us things about many aspects of life and what we're capable of. You know, as humans, when we rally together as well, right? So it's like a, it's like a kind of like yeah. a reset switch. You know, last year, I was, you know, the way I take care, obviously, if I'm volunteering in my Impossible Possible, I'm not making any money with Impossible Possible. I do all that work because it's a passion for me as a volunteer. But, and I don't collect a paycheck when I'm on frozen sea ice, but I do guide. I have a guiding business and I, uh, which involves travel. I do speak all over the world at corporate events that involves travel. Well, my entire world completely shut down at the end of February. Um, but, you know, things could have been a lot worse. And I yeah. think that, that we learn that in the different things that we do. And I'm very fortunate in my job as an, as, as an adventurer and explorer that I've learned um, that I can weather certain storms. You know what I mean? And, and you can get through it. Right. And, and I knew, and I always had this unwavering faith in humanity that people would start to figure things out. People will get through this. And, you know, even when they said, well, you know, a vaccine's never been developed and, you know, it takes 10 years. I thought, and when they first started talking about it, I thought, you know what, there are scientists and doctors and like nerds that are going to go crazy on this and they're going to just rise to the occasion for sure. And they're going to figure out a way. Well, it's amazing what people have done. Yeah. And and because they were pressed, they were pressed to do it because they had no choice, right? And so now they've been able to come up with multiple effective vaccines. And I think that when we come out of this, people will, you'll go to see your buddies at the pub and you're going to appreciate that physical time together with your buddies so much more, you know, as I will go into a coffee shop or whatever we do as groups of people. I think that human dynamic is going to be much more appreciated. Yeah, I agree. I think also, as you say, rallying together when you have governments left, right and center throwing money at it, every scientist putting their head together to work work it out. You know, it's amazing what humans can accomplish in such a short space of time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Ray, so there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week. Yep. And the first thing is when you're on your expeditions and adventures around the world, what's the one bizarre thing that you crave or miss from home? salmon, salmon <laughs> <laughs> constantly. I can eat salmon like five times a day. God, My so wife won't let me because there's, you know, it, 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 she's an environmental science person. And so she said, you can't eat, you can't eat salmon three times a day. It's not good for you to eat it every single day. So, so when you're out in the middle of the desert, that's what you're craving. I'm dude, the first meal I'm having, that's like, <laughs> like a full on get down into the, like eating overeating is salmon is the main component food. So food is the thing I think about. Yeah, I think uh, anyone who's sort of doing ultra ultra marathons, food is definitely a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite adventure book? A favorite adventure book? You know, I've read a couple of really good ones. One that comes to mind that I've read recently 
is called Frozen in Time, about the World War II pilots that crashed on Greenland. And the planes got buried in the ice. And I forget who, oh, writers, the writer's name starts with a Z. Z. Okay. okay, so people can find it. And then the other one, and you know, the other adventure book that, you know, it's not called the Greeley Expedition, but if people can find the book about the Greeley Expedition to Ellesmere, oh, it's crazy. I don't even want to tell you what happens. And But my favorite book that I've read over the last few years is The Secret Life of Trees, which is amazing. Okay. What's, um, I, I mean. It's about trees communicating. Okay. Trees can communicate. You got to read it. Okay. There's science. It's all science stuff. It's it's amazing. Okay. Um. Did you have a sort of inspirational figure growing up? Terry Fox. Terry Fox. Um, yeah. Probably for myself and some of the listeners. Who who is Terry Fox? Terry Fox is the greatest of all times. He was a Canadian. Is a Canadian hero icon. He attempted to run across Canada on the Marathon of Hope. So I'm sure you've heard about. Terry Fox Day, you guys have it in the UK, for the Terry Fox Foundation. And Terry Fox lost his leg to cancer okay. and ran across Canada. So look him up for people that don't know. Terry Fox. Incredible. Incredible. Okay. The yes. other heroes, you know, Richard Weber, polar explorer. Yeah. Uh, who I became very close friends with and his family, uh, was a huge adventure mentor to me. So just an incredible guy. And do you have a sort of favorite quote or motivational quote? Mm. You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't. I mean, I, you know, I, I've sort of made up some silly ones on my own. Like when people have asked me about, you know, these things, you know, what is endurance? Like what is the physical aspect of it? Like, how do you get it done? I always say, well, it's 90% mental and the other 10% is all in your head. But that's not really, that's like my crappy quote. So I'm trying to think of like a quote that really, I don't know. I read a lot of quotes that I love. I just can't seem to, my brain doesn't remember things anymore, but I know it when I see it, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll take the Sorry. 90%. That's a dud. And I suppose people listening are always keen to go on these adventures and expeditions like you. What's the one thing that you would recommend them to do to get started? You know, as corny as it sounds, it's come up with a goal. And when you have a goal, no matter how long term it is, and you really want that thing to happen, it will eventually happen. If you really want it, it will happen. Okay. Just come up with the idea, no matter how, you know, I'm going to climb Everest someday. Okay. You probably will. I've had people say stuff to me and they think that the response is going to be, yeah, sure, whatever. It's always, yeah, well, probably will happen. You know, I think uh, one of them that's very important is to write it down. Yeah, sure. If that's if that's what it takes, then you write it down and carry it with you every day, right? Apparently, if you write what you want down, it sort of goes to your subconscious, and deep down, you sort of say, "Right, that's what you want. That's what you need." Law of attraction. Yeah. And I suppose uh, people are wondering, what are you doing now and how can people follow your journey? Well, you know, I'm obviously, you know, I'm newer to Instagram, but I am on there. Um, so I've got a page. I've, I have a Facebook page. I've been on there forever. So I've got a couple of Facebook pages, but I have a public Facebook page, with a little blue check beside my name. I post there regularly. 
I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. But I have a website, just my name, raiseahab.com. And that has links to my charity. It has links to the Impossible to Possible website. So you can follow me there. And then if people are interested in any of the trips or um, our online cafe, we have amazing coffee. Um, you can check out capicone.com. And I don't think there's a link for my personal site. You'd have to find it. But we are, we're on Instagram as well. Amazing. And finally, I'm sure everyone is wondering, um, what's next? Yeah, you know what? I, I'm very superstitious. And so I know what's next, but I never say until I'm 100% sure that it's going to happen because I don't like putting stuff out there that I can't make happen. I'm very much a stickler. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And so, you know, with COVID and with everything else going on, just stay tuned and then we'll pick it up from there. Well, it's Maybe you'll have me back on and then I can tell you about how it goes. <laughs> well, it's lucky we weren't doing this last Friday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'd absolutely love that. Once you've uh, done it, come back on and tell us how it all went. Awesome. Love to. Well, Ray, thank you so much for coming on. And yeah, uh, we uh, look forward to whatever your next adventure holds. We'll be following with keen eyes. Thanks, John. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Ray. Next time on the Modern Adventurer podcast. A very dangerous path. It is like being, it's like being an addict, definitely. You're, you're an addict to this um, endurance feeling, this, this euphoria of, of completing something and pushing past what you perceive your limits to be then. And then knowing that you've done that and then wanting to push further and wanting to do more. I think it's, um, yeah, the, there's definitely a, an addiction there for sure. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter at zebraadventures.com. I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy travels. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.